if you're a couples therapist and if you're in a couple, you don't get to be complacent. You don't get to stagnate. You know, I mean, in our culture, everybody wants that relationship where you ride off into the sunset and you're happy forever and all that. But you don't get that without being tested. You don't get it without being challenged and you, with a willingness to grow and a willingness to change yourself and to learn more about yourself from being with somebody else. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey everyone, this is Ann. It is our honor to bring to you today Dr. Ellen Bader and her husband, Dr. Peter Pearson. So these are two very esteemed couple therapists who are known for the developmental model of couples therapy. So they are the author of Tell Me No Lies and In Search of the Mystical Mate, an award-winning book that is really an outstanding contribution to marital therapy. You should check it out. So they're considered experts in their field, and they've been covered in print, radio, television programs, including the New York Times, NPR, The Today Show, and even Oprah Magazine. I mention this because what they have to say, I think, really resonates with so many people, and I think it will you, too. So my co-host, Sue Marriott, and Ellen and Peter engage in a really wide-ranging conversation that's grounded in the Bader-Pearson developmental model of couples therapy. And it really provides structure. It helps couples identify like the different developmental tasks or the different stages that we go through in relationships and the kind of stalemates couples get into and provide some really specific developmentally based interventions. Now, they have founded the Couples Therapy Institute really loads of really interesting training, including training for entrepreneurial type couples and therapists. So check it out. All right, before we jump in, I really want to do a big shout out to our Patreons again. We've had a bit of a surge in it. We really appreciate it. And it's becoming such a dynamic group. So we're really enjoying it. If you'd like to jump on board, we are offering now book clubs. We just completed an adult attachment study group. And there's going to be all sorts of material and other resources from that offered to our Patreon members to deepen the learning experience. So find out more at patreon.com backslash therapist uncensored. All right, let's jump right in with my co-host Sue Marriott talking with Ellen Bader and Peter Pearson. Hey, everybody. I am so excited to bring the two of you, Dr. Ellen Bader and Dr. Peter Pearson today. Where are you guys calling in from? Menlo Park, California. Ah, well, thank you for joining me. And one of the things we were just touching base on a little bit was this notion that is a little different than what you often hear about when you hear about couples. It's often love, 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 attachment, be nice to each other, all this kind of stuff. And the two of you speak beautifully about differentiation. So would you mind just kind of beginning about like, what do you all mean in a love relationship and differentiation? Sure, I would love to. And as we talk about it, also to be sure that your listeners don't confuse it with individuation, which happens a lot. But differentiation, one way to think about it is it's like a disco ball with all those mirrors on it. And every one of us has so many different facets of ourselves what we think, what we feel, what we wish for, what we desire. 
And as couples are together longer and longer, if they're growing and the relationship is evolving, that disco ball is spinning and we are exposing different parts of ourselves to each other. Like different facets forward at any particular moment. Yeah. And that's what keeps the relationship alive and vital. However, if I say to Pete something that I wish or want or desire, and he wants something very different, that is going to lead us to some inevitable conflict and the need to be able to manage conflict well. And the ability to stay in the tension that's created when two partners want something that's different. Instead of that difference being scary, it can become part of what is enlivening if people are able to handle the tension and stay with it. Since we have the two of you here as uh, expert couples therapists, but also experts with each other, <laughs> would y'all mind sharing an example of what you mean with that uh, between each other? Would that be? <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, this is, you know, this is the real thing, right? Well, I, it's interesting. When Ellen and I first got together, before we started living together, things were good around clutter because she would only show up at my place after I had a cleaning person be there. But after we started living together, it soon became apparent that I have a much higher tolerance for visual disarray than Ellen does. But that's not how she would describe it. I would say you like mess, and you can live in a lot of mess that I can't. Yeah, they are a slob, you know, on a bad day. Uh, but that's, that's an example of differences. But let me ask you this, Sue. Would you want to be married to a personality clone of yourself? Oh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> Neither would I. And why wouldn't you want to be married? And, and that's what most people say, actually. Oh, yeah. Mm, so many things, right? But I'm curious, but can we go back to the clutter thing? You were talking about staying in the tension. And just to give our audience an example, I know it's probably not resolved as in never happens, but how is that managed? Well, first of all, let's say it took us a bunch of years to figure it out. Embarrassingly. <laughs> but, but that's <laughs> a because, long time. <laughs> I mean, we were young when we got together, so our differentiation levels weren't as high as they are now. But also it often means a lot of experimenting. And we tried a lot of different things, including getting some cleaning help and cleaning together and, you know, well, having How, how about jobs. this? We'd bring in a person to clean and that were everything we tried. The good news is everything we tried worked for a while. Ah. Then it collapsed. So we bring in a cleaning person. And then soon it became apparent we'd have to have a cleaning person come in every day. So... <laughs> Then we said, how about this? I will take care of one room only. I will be responsible for keeping one room. How difficult can that be? Well, that lasted for a couple of weeks. <laughs> then we said, well, how about if we do like frequent flyer miles? You keep the room, the house neat. You can collect points. And you get enough points, you can cash them in for rewards. <laughs> well, that worked for a while, too. And then it collapsed. It seems like everything we did worked and then collapsed. Well, it worked, and little pieces of it got carried into next attempt. And then one day, I came home, and I said, oh, yeah, okay, right, okay, Ellen likes a neater house. So I started to pick up, and I look around the house, and it looks pretty dang good to me. Ellen comes home, and she says, oh, it looks like you started to clean. 
Now, I'm a highly trained, well-motivated professional communicator. And what do I do? I just shoot her the bird. And then one day I came home and I remembered, oh, yeah, Ellen likes a clean house. And then she came in and she said, oh, wow, you've been working at, at picking up around here. And when you do that, I feel loved and cared about and nurtured. And I was just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And then she says, no, it's like I come home, I can exhale. I can feel so good when I come home and it's neat. It's really like a place of refuge. And seriously, it was like, I said, oh, look, my shoes right here. I, how did those shoes get there? And I put them away. And she just says, I feel so loved when you do that. Oh, the cupboard door is open. Oh, and I close the door. But it turned out unwittingly that when Ellen gives me strokes for doing something, then that's what I feed on. Ellen likes behavior. You don't have to tell me you love me every day. Just keep the house picked up. Follow through with what you say you're going to do. And I'm a happy camper. Well, people tend to give each other what they want. And so I go around the house telling Ellen how great she is. She goes around the house picking up. And we keep missing each other. But it was like, so it, was really, it really was trial and error. It's not perfect today, but it's a hell of a lot better for sure. It's so great, that personal example, because everybody that's listening can relate to some version of this, and it really brings it home. But one of the things, of course, I noticed right off the bat is the humor between the two of you and the lightness of it. And I imagine that that's one of the ways that we keep ourselves out of dysregulation. You know what I mean? Kind of keeping the ball tossing back and forth between the two of you. Like there's not a, there wasn't a winner and loser in that in the end. You found the we. You found the we. And a couple other things that made a difference is when I realized that I could say to him, is it okay if I boss you around for the next 20 or 30 minutes? And he would agree. And then I could tell him exactly what I wanted cleaned up. And so that, that made a big difference. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. We do that uh, periodically. And, and she thinks it's only 20 or 30 minutes. <laughs> Well, and Peter, you had asked me earlier about if I would want to be in a relationship with myself. It sounds like if you and I were in a relationship, I'd kind of be in a relationship with myself a little bit. <laughs> We'd have the cabinet doors open and the, <laughs> the clutter around. If I lived with a clone of myself, it would be really interesting, but nothing would get done. Somebody's got to pay attention to details and follow through, et cetera, et cetera. I can get a life-changing idea. Every time I take a shower and that wreaks havoc with anybody who likes a little predictability, stability in their life. So is there, have you found anything with this idea of owning it? That was another thing I wanted to go into that you want to be able to tolerate tension and trust that you get to ask for what you want and need and that the other person's going to stay in with you, which by the way, I think is a sophisticated set of skills, but I've been also interested in this idea of taking responsibility without shame. And I just wondered if you all had anything to say about that, about, about being able to take responsibility when you screw up. Well, part of, you know, of course, taking responsibility is a big deal. It's so hard to do, though. There's <laughs> not trying to make you be accountable. But, you know, even when I said, like, is it okay if I boss you? I'm taking accountability for the part of me that 
is like at a, at a particular moment, maybe fed up and I really do want to boss him around and get it done. And I don't want to be giving all kinds of positive strokes at that moment. So that's a kind of accountability. But yeah, there's something nice. very relieving when she says, is it okay if I boss you? For a micro moment, I'm in charge of the direction of the conversation. I'll give you an example that's so counterintuitive, Sue. It's unbelievably counterintuitive about owning your stuff and the power of owning your stuff. Couples come in and they'll say, we had a whopper of a fight this week. And they'll want to launch in and start talking about it. And... Just as predictable as the sun come up tomorrow morning, one will start accusing, the other will start getting defensive and then cross-complain, and they're off to the races. So I will ask a couple, I say, do you guys want to do something really weird, counterintuitive, strange, but if you follow these directions, you will get through this argument in a couple minutes and feel good about it but you have to follow these directions and be willing to experiment. Here's what I mean, I will say to them. Most ongoing fights are a power struggle. I'm going to convince you that you need to change so I get relief. The other person, the same place. No, you need to change so I get relief. And there's a competition about who can convince the other person to go first to make the change. In this exercise, what I want you to do is to compete for accountability and responsibility. In other words, you know the fight we had last week? And I will look at one or the other and say, it's you know, what? that fight is on me. Here's what I did that totally messed up that fight. And the other person says, not so fast, honey. What I did was discount you, ignore you, talk over you. And just go back and forth until each of you have claimed the most responsibility for that fight. When they do that, and you have maybe 70 or 80% can do it and do it reasonably well. And when they do it, the atmosphere changes immediately. And each of them will say, well, I don't have to feel like I have to convince you. You already got the message. Mm -hmm. And they did. You got it. And in a strange way, they say, it feels kind of empowering because I'm in charge now of my reaction instead of trying to persuade you very clumsily to be responsible. When people take that accountability to an extreme, like I'm talking about, they get through fights that they can be connected. They feel closer. They feel empowered. They don't carry grudges all in like three or four minutes. So that sounds fantastic. And I want to sign up for that for sure. <laughs> but what about in cases I was imagining like a couple or again, I'd always want to use myself as an example that knows that exercise and it's game for it and it says yes, but due to dysregulation, due to really being in more of a threat response, either they can't do it or they do it with that little twist. You know what I mean? Like you can just add a few words and... Uh, get somebody just because they're not yet feeling safe enough to do what you're describing? Well, yes and no. Okay. I'll give you three reasons why couples make big changes. The first one is out of desperation, a crisis. Forest fires are coming toward your house. Somebody gets really sick or a medical emergency. There's some danger that organizes them 
And all of a sudden, these couples will start communicating, collaborating, negotiating at a really high level. They have a purpose and they have a focus. And they will draw inside of themselves communication skills that have been there. But the purpose and the focus was not sufficient to bring them forth. So that's number one reason people will change. Number two is out of inspiration. If you can create a compelling enough future that will create a better version of yourself or your current situation, that gives you something to create and move together as a team to bring into the relationship. If it's inspiring enough, you will start to do the heavy work to make the changes and work as a team to get through it. And then I can give them the skills for how to do that, for the inspiration and help them deal with the trauma that gets in the way. And the third, so we have desperation, inspiration, and then negotiation. And negotiation is the one that most couples try in therapy, which is I will change X, but only after you change Y. And that is common as hell. And it never lasts very long. It doesn't last. And therapists get caught in the middle, trying to help each person be more understanding, more connected, more attached, more giving, more loving, etc. And it's a hard slog to do that. So here's what I have found. A couple comes in and they have a nasty fight and they want to talk about it. So I'll ask them this question instead. I'll say, Sue, and let's say Sue is really angry at Charlie, okay? I'll say, Sue, how motivated are you to change the way you express your complaint so that you can be heard and understood and find a better outcome? And then I'll say to Charlie, Charlie, how motivated are you to listen more effectively so that you can short circuit this fight and end up with a better connection. So I start first with the motivation instead of trying to teach them a process or the skill. Because if they're not motivated, then what I'm doing is just spitting in the wind. Or if they're motivated by some unconscious push away. I hear what you're saying that you, you're, you're basically requesting permission, which is just like the, a similar thing that in your example earlier, you're, you're requesting permission or an opening to be able to get in and make those changes. That's right. See, most of the time when couples come in, the number one presenting problem is we can't communicate. And the belief or the hope is the therapist will, first of all, take my side with the belief that my partner needs a little bit more communication skill training than I do. But the belief is that they can learn communication skills like a new equation in algebra. But no, communication is really a complex process. You have to regulate all kinds of emotions to communicate well, instead of here's what you do to communicate more effectively. And that's hard work. That's why I choose or go for inspiration, the motivation first, the skill training second. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I also like the first one being a threat from the outside can sometimes bond us. You know, Ellen, earlier you were by email, we were talking about the time that you have been doing this and things that you may have learned. And in particular, any, any things that have surprised you or the two of you in this work, you know, where your thinking has changed. 
So for therapists that are doing couples therapy, we have this opportunity for the two of you to share your wisdom. And then also for people that are either engaged in couples therapy or considering it. I was wondering if the two of you could speak to either of those or both of those kind of places. I mean, I'm going to speak bluntly to one of those points, which is if a couple is considering therapy, choose your therapist carefully. Well, what should they look for? Well, so first of all, there are thousands of websites out there where therapists say they're marital therapists or couples therapists, and they're not really trained. And the thing I've learned over the years is it takes a lot of skill and a lot of training to be a really good couples therapist. And is it true that couples therapy has the worst outcomes <laughs> or the, is the least effective as far as just in general? I don't really know. I don't know if that's true, but see, it's a question that's often asked. And here's why it's an understandable question, but it's not fair, which is, what do you call success if one person comes in and they're out of there and the other person wants to hold the marriage together? How do you define success? How do you define success that they're never going to have a whopper of a fight again? Or that they will just, they've cut down on their fights 80% of the time. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. Success for a couple is so much different than trying to create the definition of success for an individual. Yeah, I think that's really true. And what made me think of it was just, Ellen, you saying that to get a good therapist, and because that people aren't trained, so many people aren't trained, but are able to say, I'm a couples therapist. So that's, I think, another factor. Yeah, and I wanted to add to that, which is when you're interviewing a couples therapist, by all means, ask them, how many couples do you typically see in a week? If somebody's not seeing at least more than five, they're not a couples therapist, let's face it. They do occasional couples therapy, and that's different. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, when you take your relationship into a therapist, that's like one of the most precious relationships of your whole entire life. And if you've got kids involved, the stakes are high. So ask a lot of questions about the experience level of the therapist, about the model that they use about the training and supervision they've had. It's fair to ask those kinds of questions and make sure that you're getting somebody who's really devoted themselves to, it's a unique specialty and it should, you should see a specialist. And it's hard to do well. Here's how you can tell how experienced and skilled a therapist is in working with couples. If they say on their website, I create a safe place for you to be heard and understood, do you know what a highly troubled, dysfunctional couple is going to hear? Oh, I can let it rip, and you are going to make me feel safe to finally let it rip. Well, guess what? When you let it rip and the therapist confronts you, you're not going to feel safe. So the therapist is actually describing something that's not possible with a really dysfunctional couple. You don't make it safe for both people all the time in the room. That's impossible. Because when they start unloading on each other and you jump in to interrupt, one or the other is not going to, quote, feel safe and understood. The other one is when therapists use the word, tell your partner what you need. That really grates on me. Because when you say, honey, here's what I need from you. The listener hears that as an obligation, and it's a transaction I have to do. It's not a gift. If you tell me what you need, I deliver it, but it doesn't feel like I'm giving you a gift. I'm just giving you what you need, and it feels 
a pressured obligation. You know, I do so much training of therapists and I look at sessions over and over and over again and I can see therapists who do a fabulous job through two thirds of a session and then they hit a tension moment and they'll say to somebody, tell your partner what you need from them because they don't know what else to say. And that's a typical language. It's very common. It's very familiar. And that simple transaction can undo the last 30 minutes of really good, solid work. What's a better thing to say in that moment of tension? Well, it it depends a bit on what's going on, but what you're really saying is, wait a minute, can you tolerate this tension a bit longer to be curious, to understand why your partner feels as strongly as they feel about this particular thing. And it's a really interesting moment for couples. I had a woman in my office last week who's had a long-term relationship where she's been very depressed in this relationship for a long, long time and not able to speak up and afraid to speak up. And all of a sudden she and her husband are in a moment of conflict and she turned to me and she said, wait, this is it, isn't it? And she said, should I keep talking? And I said, absolutely. You're finally able to talk to him about what matters to you. And yes, there's tension. He's never heard this from you. It's a surprise to him, but hang in there, keep talking rather than trying to smooth it over by calming things down. And picking a good therapist or the right therapist, either of your your experience that the therapist's own history, their own attachment history, how have you seen that play out? Do you think about that or talk about that? Unavoidable. And I mean, the therapists are not automatons, okay? We come into the room, the office, with our own set of values, priorities, interests, weaknesses, vulnerabilities, et cetera. And to take into consideration just what you're talking about, Sue, Ellen has a one-year online training program for therapists, but part of that training program, it goes beyond theory and intervention. Part of the training she does is actually when I get on the phone and help therapists deal with their vulnerabilities, their transference, their counter-transference, and work with them when they get really stuck about what goes on inside of the therapist that keeps them from being more objective, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really an important part of the training, which is mostly unusual, is to help the therapist deal with their stuff as well. It's a critical component that is too often overlooked. I mean, the other thing that you asked about the therapist's attachment, and I'm a good example, because I grew up in a family that couldn't tolerate conflict where I was sent to my room, I even raised my voice slightly with my sister and, you know, that kind of thing. And so initially when I did couples therapy, I was trying to smooth things over way too fast. And I had to learn myself how to be okay being in those moments of tension and how to help couples not over-compromise. I mean, people say, let's find a compromise. And I say, wait, let's not compromise too fast because usually one compromise builds the resentment. I mean, unless people are really 100% behind that compromise, it's just setting the stage for the next fight and the next resentment. Ellen grows up in a, in a conflict avoidant family. I grew up in a family where if you couldn't make fun of yourself, somebody else would do it for you. So there is a lot of conflict in my family. So I'm used to it. 
I don't shy away from disagreement and conflict and provoking somebody. And I would get Ellen stirred up and she'd think or say, why are you being so mean? I'd say, what are you talking about? This <laughs> very, very different styles that we had to work out. And I think a good couples therapist learns to be the flexibility to move between high conflict and really being able to create collaboration. You know, on this podcast, we talk so much about regulation. So that's some of what you're describing is that if we can't stay regulated, depending on what's in front of us, whether it's understimulating or overstimulating, because we have an unconscious too. And if because it's unconscious, we don't know it. <laughs> so I kind of think of it that way. And, and I just love kind of how y'all are talking about it for hey, sure. Too, let me back up for a minute about yeah. how you can instead of telling your partner what you need, there's not a quick answer to that. But I have a series of questions that I will help couples go through to get a more three-dimensional perspective on their tension. I will say to somebody, will you tell your partner what's important to you? And will you tell them why that's important to you? And will you tell them how you respond to them when you don't get what's important to you? Now they got to start owning some of their stuff. Well, I pout, I give you the cold shoulder, I get snarky, whatever. And now let's enlarge the picture even more. Why do you think it would be difficult for your partner to give you what you want? Now we're enlarging it to have a little empathy instead of just seeing your spouse as a need gratifying object. Why do you think it would be difficult for them to give you what you want? And then I'll say, are you willing to do anything to make it easier for your partner to give you what you want? So there's a whole series of questions, more than just say, here's what I need, and then wait for the miracle to happen. You do these little twists in your prompts that is the hook to then open up. Right. So what about in your experience in training therapists who work with couples, what do you see there? What are some of the most common mistakes that therapists make? I think a lot of the common mistakes fall under the term of being reactive. So the therapist doesn't go into a session with a clear sense of direction and they're reactive to whatever the client brings in. So, I mean, of course, the most common one of those is the fight of the week. And then you're dealing with the fight of the week, but not in a broader context. Like, how does this fit with what the two of you are trying to create together? How does this fit in terms of the developmental skills and capacities that each partner is learning and growing in? Because if you just stick with solving fights. You're a referee. <laughs> well, not only are you a referee, but the therapy could last forever because people aren't learning either to work on really developing new capacities in themselves. They may not be touching the trauma that's underneath it. And so they could be there for years solving one fight after the next. And to me, that's not effective therapy. The other thing is that Therapists will often try to apply the same skills working with an individual as working with a couple, and they don't translate. Because with a highly dysfunctional couple, it's important for a therapist to take a leadership position, a directive position, in a way that would be inappropriate working with an individual. That's a great point, that you're much more active. Oh, by a lot. I really think that couples therapy starts... When I return the phone call, when somebody wants to make an appointment, that's when it starts. And I'll ask them to, I, say, I will say, uh, so will you give me a quick headline 
of uh, your situation. I don't say problem. I say give me a quick headline of your situation. Well, we can't communicate, da-da-da-da-da-da. I say, great, that was pretty fast. Now, let me ask you a question you're going to hope I don't ask when you come in, which is what do you think would be required of you, not your partner, but what do you think would be required of you to be a better communicator? And often they will say, me? Yeah, you. What do you think would be required of you, not your partner? That's way too easy. And they go, me? Yeah. Well, right away, you get an idea of why they're showing up for therapy. It's not a we. It's a they need to change. So I'll push and I'll say, yeah, okay, I tell you what. I'll be asking your partner the same question. What's going to be required of them, not you, to be, create a better communication pattern between the two of you? And then generally, I will get something. I say, okay, we're off to a good start. And then I will email them a document, how to get the most out of our work together. It's about what they could expect from me, what I would expect of them, and what I think creates a really good relationship. And then I'll say at the end of the document, there will be three questions I want you and your partner to email me before our first meeting. And I'll tell you what the questions are so you don't have to write them down. The first question is, what kind of relationship do you want to create? If you guys stay together, what kind of relationship do you want that will make you glad to see each other at the end of the day? That gives us a target, what we're working toward. The second question is, why is that kind of relationship important to you? That's the motivation to do the work. And the third question is, and it's the toughest one, what's going to be required of me, not my partner, to bring about the relationship that we want to create together instead of coming in here and just pointing fingers? So I want each of you to email me those responses before our first meeting. I want to set the stage before they come in. This is not a place where you guys are just going to point fingers and hope I will take your side and reform your spouse. This is going to be a team effort. And I like the acronym of team, which is together each accomplishes more. And that's what we're going to do in here. You're going to work as a team, getting out of the mess that it took both of you to get into. So I I want to set the stage before they even come in. Is that anything that is shareable for our listeners? Your notes? It's on our website. You can go there and look at it on the blog. And before we leave this particular section, do you work differently with couples if you can identify? We talk about with attachment as a spectrum and that we're not in a box somewhere, but that we lean red, which is preoccupied, or we lean blue, which is a little bit more of a dismissing stance versus being in an integrated state, you know, which is the green where that we have all of our circuits firing well. Do you do different things with couples that you see that kind of land in those more extreme categories or on the ends of the spectrum? Do you think in those terms? I think in the attachment terms, maybe somewhat similarly and maybe not identically, which is that each of us in our own childhood have a primary attachment pattern to each of our caregivers. So first of all, it's going to depend on the number of primary caregivers you had, what those primary attachments are. And when we get in a relationship with a partner, we are very likely, when things are going well, to occupy one of those attachment patterns. So, I mean, an example would be, I had a secure attachment with my dad, and with my mom, I had a very avoidant attachment. So, when things are going well with Pete, I can operate from the secure attachment. When I'm under stress, I'm more likely to withdraw and avoid. And so I think, first of all, that it's helpful to couples to understand 
what their primary attachments are and what, where they're likely to go under stress. And that as each partner understands that about the other one, I mean, one of the most core things for couples to learn is how to not take personally what the other person is doing. And so when you understand that what they're doing is self-protective, it's a self-protective coping mechanism, it's not personal to you, it makes it easier to learn how to either support the partner when they're in a bad place or they're triggered. And it also makes it easier for a person themselves to say, do I want to change this about myself? Am I okay that I treat my partner this way? Or do I want to be different in terms of how I respond? Back to the motivation question. How eager, receptive is somebody to really learn a different pattern, a different way of being, to go through the effort to regulate yourself instead of trying to shape up your partner so you don't have to regulate yourself? You know, once a couple gets in the room with a couple's therapist, they think they're in couple's therapy. But you're not really in couple's therapy until some of these things that Pete's been talking about are met, like... Are you there to focus on yourself? Are you there to make significant changes, to develop new capacities? Is there motivation for change? If you're there to point fingers and just keep doing the same old, same old, you can't call that a couple that's in couples therapy. Oh, I really love that. And it's kind of really holding people's feet to the fire. In the training that you do, I know PACT is a very uh, popular kind of couples therapy model. Is there overlap? Are there significant differences? I just wonder about that. So first of all, our model is called the developmental model of couples therapy. And it's a model that integrates attachment differentiation and neuroscience. So there definitely are some similarities with PACT, but there's some big differences too, because we do focus a lot on differentiation. And in fact, there's a lot of confusion in therapists between avoidant attachment, pseudo-autonomy, and thinking that that's differentiation. So individuation is a healthy developmental phase, and it has to do with where partners get their sense of self-esteem away from the relationship, how the relationship is faring. So it might be somebody's job, it might be a hobby, it might be community involvement, whatever it is, we all have different areas that are healthy, that are part of who we are as people, and make us able to function better too. But there are many relationships where people move from that initial beginning, you know, we are a couple, we're together, we're merged in some ways, to jumping into their independent pursuits without learning how to differentiate together. They don't have a base of differentiation. And without that, the things that they do as individuals become things where they act in avoidant or pseudo-autonomous ways. So they say things like, well, I'm not going to let you stop me from whatever it is. I'm not going to let you get in my way. Because they don't know how to do the differentiation that would enable them to come and go in a collaborative and much healthier, smoother way with each other. Like there's a winner and a loser 
in that first way that you described it, where it's pseudo-autonomy. Yeah, I li- that's a really nice concept. So it's a win or lose, but I want to just sort of draw out a little bit more about what that sounds like when it's an actual differentiated conflict, you know? So let me tell you one of my favorite differentiation stories. We were doing a couples workshop where we were teaching couples about differentiation and how to stay in the tension and how to learn how to ask good questions and how to not take things personally. And we had a couple in the workshop who had a 10 year long, very, very tension filled marriage. They were doing an exercise that we created in front of the whole group. She said to her partner, she said, do you really, really want to know how I feel? And he said, yeah, I do want to know how you feel. And she said, I pray for your death. And this guy's in good health. And yeah, and the whole room just gasped. I mean, there was this, you know, there were probably 25 people in that room. They just went, whoa. And, and then there was this just poignant silence in the room. And you could watch her husband and it was like his brain. You could just watch him thinking, what in the world am I going to do? What am I going to say? And then he turned to her and bless his heart, he turned to her and he said to her, so just how long have you been praying? You know, she was Catholic. She was able to say for 10 years, I've never believed in divorce. I didn't believe that it would ever be possible to have any freedom in this marriage. I felt so stuck. And she was able to tell him and he was able to listen. It was the first real conversation they'd ever had about how totally, totally restricted and stuck she felt in that marriage. And her only way out, she believed, would be if he died. And this is great. The next morning, they're, they're going for a walk, going down the highway, and there's this big semi-truck coming toward them, and he says to her, well, now is your chance. And <laughs> she said, at that moment, the hourglass of our marriage turned upside down because I knew he could handle what I had to say without crumbling. And that's a great example of differentiation instead of looking for a stronger way to keep them attached. Can you really be strong enough to hear what's going on? Now, there's one more thing I would say about therapists and about people seeking a therapist. When therapists advertise that they use evidence-based therapy as guidelines for what they do or research-based or scientific, da-da-da, well, the reality is There are no evidence-based protocols ever for highly dysfunctional couples. Highly distressed. Distressed distressed or dysfunctional. Evidence-based approaches do not exist for couples who are on one end of the bell curve. There's a good reason why car manufacturers will say actual mileage may vary. I was talking to a five-star chef, and I said, if you have six people in your class and you're making a dish that has seven or eight ingredients. Everybody has the same ingredients, the same oven, etc. Following your step-by-step instructions, the likelihood that everybody will have the same outcome you have when they take it out of the oven is what? He said, zero. It does not happen. Now, I'm going to suggest humans are a little more complex than some flour and sugar, a little butter, etc., If you can't get the same result as a five-star chef when you're following the recipe, 
and the oven step by step, do you really think you can take a high distress couple and have a protocol that will work for them and the next high distress couple, the same protocol will work for them? That ain't gonna happen. But yet therapists somehow believe that if I take an evidence-based approach, I will have at least give the illusion I know what I'm doing until the yogurt hits the fan in the office with that couple. And all of a sudden, there are no protocols. There are no research that will tell you what to do right now to handle your emotions, their emotions. So it's a kind of a hobby horse I get on sometimes. No, I get it. That way, not everybody's going through the same car wash, right? Now, I was curious, and I know many people are often curious about this, about when you as a couple yourselves are training. Give us a peek behind the scenes around, because you're relationship is obviously being watched and learned from and you're using it as a model but like would you be transparent about some difficulty that you're having or like what what would happen with that i would say i used to finish ellen's sentences you know you used to and but now i'm getting better because now i i can start her sentences as well as finish them That's great. In answer to your question, though, we do sometimes work out conflict in front of a group and people value that. Oh, I bet they do. I bet that's actually probably some of the deepest learning that happens. When we started, you know, we weren't good enough at doing it ourselves. And so we still would try to do it, but sometimes it wasn't so skillful. (laughs) But even that, even that is important, right? Because... This is so, so hard. And when those of us that teach this or talk about it can be that vulnerable and that transparent, but still in the game and still figuring it out, it's just so de-shaming for people. I mean, we did a we did a training workshop at UC Irvine just a week ago, and we had a real difference of opinion of how to do the afternoon. And so we actually ended up working that out in front of the audience. Oh, that's fantastic. It really is such a gift. The two of you have been doing this for so long. And let me just clarify. So Dr. Bader, you lead the Institute. Is that right? So I run the day-to-day operations okay. of the Institute. And okay. I run a large online training program as well. And that's the year-long program? Yeah. It's an online year-long program. For professionals? Yeah. For therapists? Licensed therapists? I take interns and students. Students. Okay. There are a few relationship coaches in there as well. And then on your end, are you part of the Institute? I am. And I do a lot more things geared toward the public. I used to do weekend workshops for couples, but I lost my venue. I had an ideal location where to do it, but they sold it and reconfigured the building. And so I'm in the process of trying to find a better, because I really need a large room for everybody and then breakout rooms for couples to do exercises and and hotels don't work because I always end up next to a bar mitzvah or a wedding. Oh God. So hotels really are not great places, but I do more things with the public. Interesting. And you do coaching. Yeah. So you're able to work with people on the phone. Right. All over the country. Because if you're a licensed therapist, you can only work in the state that you're licensed. And I wanted to expand the boundary. And we had touched on this earlier, but I just wondered if there were further thoughts about, again, anything that has surprised you or that has that you've changed how you do something or like a new direction that either of you see? 
Yeah, you know the thing that surprised me the most, Sue, was how much I have to change and grow to practice what I preach. Yeah, we can say that, but actually doing it is the, <laughs> the surprise, bro. Ay, ay, ay. It's a challenge. You know, it's, it's an integrity challenge. If I'm really going to you know, practice what I preach, then I got to show up differently at home. And as I talked about the disco ball at the beginning, if you're a couples therapist and if you're in a couple, you don't get to be complacent. You don't get to stagnate. You know, I mean, in our culture, everybody wants that relationship where you ride off into the sunset and you're happy forever and all that. But you don't get that without being tested. You don't get it without being challenged and you, with a willingness to grow and a willingness to change yourself and to learn more about yourself from being with somebody else. There's no tenure, right? <laughs> right. Here's the big learning for me, which is I think the biggest impediment for a couple is to sustain a really wonderful, loving, connected, attached relationship. The biggest impediment can probably be summarized in two words. Uh, and the two words I would say are called living together. <laughs> That's great. It's true. Two human animals having to share space over time. Very challenging. Well, let me say Benjamin Disraeli said, it destroys one's nerves to be amiable to the same person every day. <laughs> <laughs> Which goes back to differentiation. Thank you. Anything that we haven't gotten to that you would like to say or share, including we'll be moving to a little bit more about how that you can be reached. And also if there's any articles or PDFs or links or anything like that that you would like to share, feel free to say those and send them to me and I will make sure that they get in our show notes. Well, I would say this. We write two different types of blogs on our website. One is for therapists and one is for the public. So if they go to couplesinstitute.com forward slash blog, you can look at what you want. I mean, if you're a therapist, there's everything on there from the stages of relationships to attachment and differentiation material to how to work with a self-absorbed partner, how to deal with infidelity. I mean, there's a huge, huge range of free information. We also have a lot of different training products we've created over the years Again, everything from infidelity to the hostile, fighting, angry couple to conflict avoidant couples. So we believe in giving back to the community. So we put out a lot of free material and also definitely have paid training materials as well. There's also a series of blogs for couples about improving their relationship. And sometimes people say, what's the best advice you would give a newlywed couple? And I wrote a blog on this finally, which is when you get married and you write your own wedding vows, after you write them down, keep them in a safe place. And the first time you have a whopper of a fight, go look at your wedding vows. That's your map for how to deal with that fight. So I wrote a blog about that. There's also another blog about lessons from a grave digger for a particular kind of couple relationship. And I used to be a grave digger. So I wrote a blog on a grave digger's perspective on a particular kind of relationship. You don't mean metaphorically. Well, both. Both. Literally and metaphorically. So you literally were a grave digger. Literally, yes. Oh, <laughs> okay. Okay. 
He had two to make, shovels. To make to money when he was in college. A tarp. <laughs> and then there's another one, too, which is really good advice, which is lessons from the British Navy 200 years ago that could save your marriage. And it's not about discipline. So there's a lot of blogs like that just for how to keep your marriage alive and thriving. That is wonderful. So those of you that are listening, I really encourage you to follow up with these resources. You're also going to be able to find them on our show notes. Our website is therapistuncensored.com backslash episodes. And that's where you'll find this most easily. You can also subscribe to our podcast on any podcast player. If you will be so kind as to rate and review us, this is part of how we get really great guests like this. And I have to say, I have so much respect for the two of them. I would really, really recommend for the follow-up. There's no reason not to, right? That there's free material there, but it's really high quality. It's really vetted, kind of curated content is the way I would think of it. And you can hear by talking to them, it gets right to the heart of the matter and is based kind of from real people to real people. You know what I mean? It's not these theoretical ideas that someone has learned. So couplesinstitute.com, if they need a little tickle reminder where to go. If a therapist wants to learn more about the training program, there's a long description at couplesinstitute.com forward slash developmental model. All right. Well, we will definitely be sending people there. So before we go, I wanted to just mention the two of you. It occurred to me right in the middle of it. I think that I remember you guys talking about a trip to Africa. Is this right? That the two of you did together. And there's maybe even a little video. So that was also one of the things that stood out to me was I remember that video and how lovely that was for the two of you to talk about it. I went actually with my partner to Robertsport and basically West Africa and did some attachment research. And it has been one of the most moving, powerful experiences that we've ever done. Liberia, we still have very good friends from there and stayed really connected to that community. So it's just such an incredible experience. You're right. Actually, the video is still on our website, and oh, it's good. an example for people to watch us working out a differentiation issue. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time and just have such respect for the two of you. So, And thank you, Sue. Yeah, appreciate thank you very it. much. Bye-bye. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 